one of the uh, survivors of the, the Nazi Holocaust, Primo Levi, uh, wrote, Today, I think that if for no other reason than an Auschwitz existed, no one in our age should speak of God's providence. Well, Dostoevsky has um, Ivan Karamazov uh, say these words in his um, famous novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Um, Ivan says, imagine you are creating the fabric of human destiny. In other words, imagine you're God. Imagine you are creating the fabric of human destiny with the object of making men happy in the end, giving them peace and rest at last, but that it was essential and inevitable to torture to death only one tiny creature and to found that edifice on the unavenged tears of that one creature. Would you consent to be the architect on those conditions? That's two uh, poetic ways of framing the challenge of how can there be a God, a good God, if there's suffering? Why does God allow suffering in the world? That's what we're going to look at this morning, um, thinking about it first from a sort of a philosophical point of view and then thinking about the way in which um, the Bible speaks into that, especially in the Gospel. So thinking both about the argument of the problem of evil, the biblical teaching on the causes of evil and suffering, but then thinking about how in the gospel we're told God identifies with us in our suffering and there can even be goods that come through suffering. So first let's think about the problem of evil, the formal argument. I've given you a couple of quotes, but behind those quotes from Primo Levi or Dostoevsky, there's a, there's a more formal kind of argument that runs along these lines, right? Here, here are the propositions of the argument, the problem of evil argument. Uh, God is an all-powerful being. God is an all-loving being. And yet evil exists. Those are the three propositions. And so if that's true, that God is all-powerful and God is all-loving and evil exists, well, can those all be true? That's the challenge. Perhaps we should really say uh, either God is all-powerful but not all-loving. So he doesn't want to stop evil. That's how we explain it. They're not all true. Uh, The fact that God is uh, all-loving is false. God's all-powerful, evil exists, but God's not all-loving. That's one solution. Another solution um, is to say God's not all-powerful. So, okay, so evil exists and God is all-loving, but he just can't stop evil. So either he doesn't want to stop it, he's not all-loving, or he can't stop it, he's not all-powerful. I suppose you could say another option would be that uh, God is neither all-powerful nor all-loving, in which case you begin to wonder whether we're really talking about God anymore. (laughs) In what sense is that God? Um, Or... Is it possible somehow, as Christians want to say, that God is both all-powerful and all-loving and evil exists? But then how? Why? That's our, that's our question. It is a question that some people assume proves that God can't exist. It's certainly true that there are some people who have been devout believers of some kind or another and then go through a period of great suffering, cry out to God to relieve them of that suffering, and say, here's your chance, God. I don't know if you've seen that film, The Grey. Has anyone seen that film? It's, you know how there are occasionally there are films where just you, all you need is like three, three sentences and you go, yeah, that's, that, I'll watch that film. So let me pitch this film to you. And yeah, It's Liam Neeson, Plane Crash, Wolves. Sounds pretty good, right? That's all you need to know. Uh, <laughs> Liam Neeson, Plane Crash, Wolves, I'm in. Um, in, in The Grey, uh, we get a scene like that where this, this person under great duress cries out to the grey sky, the empty, echoey sky in this terrible condition. It says, come on, God, now, help me, help me, help me now. I won't tell you what happens. 
But um, many people, when they do cry out like that, and find the sky is unresponsive, that God doesn't hear the prayer, so to speak, uh, that they abandon their faith. So certainly some people, in their experience, see this as an evidence against the existence of God. Many philosophers see it as a knockdown argument. Oh, you know, there's, there's my proof. God can't exist. Uh, however, there are many people for whom the opposite is the case. That actually through times of great suffering and difficulty, they come to faith in God. There are many people that the time of suffering is a trigger point for conversion. And there are many people who through suffering testified a deepening in their religious faith. And there are many countries of the world that face all sorts of difficulties of violence or sickness or poverty where there is a high preponderance of religious belief. So, and of course there are many philosophers and, and um, uh, academics who have religious belief uh, who've considered this argument and found it wanting. So it's not that this is a knockdown argument. Yeah? Some people are convinced by it. Many are not. And it's worth saying, actually, that there is an opposite argument that we also could raise, which is the problem of good. That if you don't believe in a God, then you don't have the difficulty of saying, well, how can I explain evil in the world? You have an opposite problem. Well, how can I explain good? I want to say this is a good thing, a beautiful thing, a noble thing, a desirable thing. But from a philosophical point of view, if there's no ultimate source of good and value, then I can't really say that good is any better than evil. You've got a problem of good. <laughs> you can't really say uh, what is loving and right and compassionate is any better than what is evil or cruel or painful. In fact, uh, if you don't believe in a God, then philosophically speaking, you might even struggle to be outraged by evil. You know, you raise this issue, how can God allow evil? But if you don't believe in a God, then you shouldn't be really especially outraged by evil one way or the other. Worth thinking about, a question for another day. But let's think about uh, the question, how would a Christian go about reflecting on and answering? Or how would even a philosopher go about reflecting on and analysing this question? If God is all-powerful and God is all-loving, how can suffering exist? The most basic answer to the question, um, the most common answer to the question, actually, is to point out that we can't have a full answer, but we can know enough of what we don't know for that to be a rational position to hold. We can't have a full answer to the question, how can God allow evil and suffering? But we can know enough about what we don't know to make that a satisfactory answer to the question. This is different to someone just saying, oh, it's a mystery. To brush off any question, oh, it's a mystery. Some people have that experience of going through school. They ask a question for the religious education teacher or the, uh, the preacher or the nun or whoever, and they say, oh, you know, what about this question? And the person says, oh, it's a mystery, oh, it's a mystery, oh, it's a mystery, and they never get any answers, that kind of thing. Just have faith, just have faith, just have faith, it's a mystery. This is a little different than that. Rather than saying, we're not even going to entertain the question, instead it's saying, here is the source of what we don't know. Here is the area of the unknowns. Here is why it is reasonable to suspend judgment. Here is why perhaps even it's impossible or very difficult for humans to have a satisfactory answer to the question. That's what we're dealing with here. So let me give that to you. What is the thing that we might not know? What are the things that we can't see clearly that makes it reasonable to think uh, that uh, there can be a good, all-powerful God and yet be evil in the world? Time and eternity is the first major thing that we don't know the mechanics of. How does an eternal 
timeless but personal God interact with time and matter and cause and effect. That's a massive area of vast difference to our everyday experience. We're used to time, uh, people in time who are limited in a world of cause and effect, but we can't apply those things directly to an infinite, eternal, timeless God. So that's the first one. A second one is how an eternal personal God relates to uh, limited personalities, temporal personalities. In other words, uh, predestination and freedom, uh, God's sovereignty and freedom. There is a personal God, and yet there are other personalities within God's world. How do those things relate? Those are two areas of complexity, um, two areas beyond our experience, two areas with enough unknowns for us to say, why does suffering exist? Because as an eternal God and a personal God relates to time with multiple personalities and and wills and decision-making beings in the world, there is enough space for there to be evil without God to be directly responsible for that evil and with God to have a larger purpose with that evil. You can't say that if there's evil in the world, therefore God must necessarily be to blame, in other words, or that because evil exists in the world, God must be obliged immediately to stop it. There are enough unknowns between time and eternity, between God's will and human choices, for us to say there is, there is space for an unknown. God is all good. God is all powerful. But suffering exists. The two choices aren't either God can't stop it or God won't stop it. They're not the only two choices. A third choice is that God's power and goodness interact with the world in a way that permits evil and suffering without making God directly to blame for evil and suffering. He allows it without willing it in a strong sense to make him evil. He allows it and is able to work through it, therefore not being entirely powerless in the face of it. As we go into the the next section and ponder this a little further, it's it's worth bearing in mind that as the Bible helps us understand this more fully, um, that... uh, The Bible presents us a a story of what God is doing in the world. It gives us a timeline of beginning, middle and end. And part of the answer the Bible gives to how we make sense of suffering in the world is where evil came from, what God is doing now, why he's permitting it, and what God will do to finish it. That answer, that timeline answer, is quite different to the philosopher's argument that seems weirdly timeless. It's as if, oh, if there's evil in the world, God must stop it right now. And if God hasn't stopped it right now, then God must either be not all loving or not all powerful. It's kind of a timeless thing. It's, it's like, oh, uh, right now, there's God, and he's good and all loving, but there's suffering. Why hasn't God fixed it immediately? But the Bible's answer, as we're going to look at, um, actually begins with a beginning. Where did evil come from? How is God permitting it now? What will God do to solve the problems of evil? And so to that, we're going to turn. But before we move on, I just want to pause to say um, it it is, it's a challenging thing, I recognise that, but it's a really important thing to embrace this idea of of mystery and unknowns. It's a thing that uh, in many ways we're we're right to seek answers, we're right to doubt and to question and to deepen in knowledge, yeah, so that's why we're devoting time to this question. 
And yet at the same time, it is good and right to know the limits of our knowledge. The Bible has both. It has both teaching and instruction and answers to questions in it, but it also has this challenge of recognising our limitations. Think about the book of Job, filled with challenges and questions and the experiences of suffering. And yet also, what's the challenge to Job at the end of the book? You're not God. God is greater than you are. You can't know everything. You can't see everything. You can't understand everything. Part of true wisdom is both seeking answers and also embracing our limitations. Or elsewhere, Isaiah speaks about the fact that ultimately God is the potter and we're the pot, <laughs> we're the clay, uh, that we can't, we're not in a position to challenge everything that God says and does because we don't have the capacity to understand everything God says and does. And that's the challenge of faith and knowledge, of doubt and understanding, of embracing mystery and recognising our limits. Yeah? It's to strive to understand, but to recognise we cannot fully understand everything. That's the kind of challenging in-between space we're at. Yeah? And part of the challenge of, um, in a sense, uh, Christian intellectual life is exactly that to seek doubts, to seek answers, to probe and to question and understand, and to still at the same time have a, um, a kind of an intellectual ethic that can say, I'm still not God. I don't have to understand everything fully, entirely, all the time. All right, then. Let's think then about this timeline, the causes of evil and suffering, right? It's not just this timeless thing, God's all-powerful, God's all-loving, evil exists, why hasn't he stopped it? Now, rather, a lot of what the Bible gives is this answer of uh, where evil comes from and uh, what God's doing about it now and so on and so forth. So let's think about evil and suffering. Causes of evil and suffering, the types of evil and suffering. In the first place, we need to realise there are some things we think of as suffering or kind of bad that aren't evils. So being alone can lead to loneliness or boredom it's not fun feeling lonely or feeling bored. But being alone isn't like an evil, as if somehow, oh, there's a problem. Why does God allow me to be alone right now? <laughs> or something like this. Or missing out on an opportunity. I don't know, if you're trying out for a sports team or an orchestra or a musical theatre um, part and someone else gets it instead, um, that's disappointing. But disappointments aren't like evils how did god allow why could there be a cool powerful god and i didn't get the part you know so there are some kinds of sufferings in the world that have to do with finitude uh, the limitations of the world that aren't bad things in themselves being alone missing out on something um growing up these things like this are not evil things even if they can be difficult things yeah Stubbing your toe or any kind of pain response is unpleasant, but actually is a sign of a healthy body you know, in, in, in many ways. Do you see what I mean? They're not evils in that sense. So it's worth putting that to one side as a different category of thing. It's also worth seeing natural so-called evil, so-called natural evil, as not simply evil in a simple sense, in the sense that if there is gravity and hard things and fragile bodies then tripping and falling off a cliff could hurt or kill somebody. But it's not that gravity or hard things or tripping or any of those things are evils in themselves. Do you see what I mean? So it's not like you can say, oh, where did the evil come from uh, that I tripped and fell off the cliff or, or that 
I don't know, an animal is, is carnivorous and I'm in the w woods or the jungle and face an animal or a volcano erupts or um, a d disease. Um, these kinds of things, so-called natural evils, they're not simply evil in any obvious sense. A bear is a bear, a shark is a shark, a disease is a disease, gravity is gravity, rocks are hard, bodies are fragile, so on and so forth. They're not simple evils in that sense, yeah, that we have to say, oh, where do they come from? Again, in a sense, they're the results of a limited and dynamic world. That there are risks in a limited and dynamic world, threats in a limited and dynamic world that could be predicted, avoided, cured, defended against, healed, and so on and so forth, yeah? That those experiences of sufferings, in a sense, are the results of human finitude, um, uh, power and, uh, and so on and so forth. They're a different kind of thing. So leaving aside uh, disappointments, aloneness, pain responses and natural evils, what we really need to think about is actual evil as a starting point. Human spiritual evil. Genuine, deliberate, moral, willed evil or extremely neglectful, incompetent um, uh, evils of omission and so much of the causes of suffering in the world are the result of that of humans taking things they shouldn't take destroying things they should have left alone yeah um, uh, abusing others twisting the truth or even many of the natural evils we just spoke about can be the result of human neglects as well can't they where um, I should have actually been wiser in the construction of that building or not built it as close to that fault line, or um, not uh, have been more careful in protecting those under my care, and, and so on and so forth. Managing the natural environment in a way that's more sustainable. Human evil. What is the cause of human moral evil? The great preacher, theologian and philosopher Augustine observed, we mustn't think of evil as a thing. Evil is not a thing in the way that good is. Evil is a negation of good. It's not that uh, where, did, where did trees come from, where did rocks come from, where did uh, goodness and kindness come from, where did evil and cruelty come from as, as equally existent creations. No, evil is a, a distortion or a twisting or a breaking of a good thing. Here's a modern theologian, uh, Henri Blocher, Henry Blocher, Henri Blocher, um, he writes this way about this thought. Uh, the mystery of evil is the one unique, inscrutable mystery, as unique as evil itself, uh, it, as, um, as unique as evil itself. It comes from itself. Far from being absurd, it corresponds precisely with the experience of evil, with its two facets, unjustifiable reality. We do not understand the why of evil, but we can understand that we cannot understand. So it's that same thing again. We, we can't fully explain it in all its ways, but we can explain what we can't explain. A rational solution to the problem of evil would imply that evil was an integral part of the harmony that came forth from God. But evil is a disruption, a discontinuity, a disorder, an alienness, that which defies description in creational terms. Evil is not a thing, a force equivalent to good, it is an absence or a perversion of good. As C.S. Lewis writes, when humans chose to do evil, it was the emergence of a new kind of man, a new species never made by God, had sinned itself into existence. 
That is, evil is not a creation that God needs to be held responsible for, but it's the result of humans failing to stay close to God, failing to do what God has willed. It's a breaking of what is good. Yeah? It's not a separate creation that needs some equal, opposite cause. It's human beings falling short, turning away, neglecting to do, refusing to listen. And so it does have its origin in other human agents doing what is wrong. It's human beings turning aside from what is good and right, distorting to what is uh, false. It's not inevitable. It's not that human beings, if they lived long enough, would inevitably have sinned. That like somehow, we've, We feel that way now because humans now are already evil and so we already will drift away from God. But it's not that Adam and Eve inevitably had to have eventually, sooner or later, have turned away from God. It's that this horrible thing happened, this unnecessary distortion happened, and they turned aside from God. Humans and some angels, the Bible teaches, chose to do this absurd evil thing, not as if it was inevitable, not as if it was unavoidable, not as if the very fact of freedom means evil must have happened, but it did happen. And as a result of that, much evil and suffering now results in the world. And that does come back to this question of natural evils too. Yeah, uh, it's, it's Human negligence can lead to worse natural evil, can fail to take due diligence against natural evil, yes. But also, the Bible describes uh, the experience of natural evil as part of God's punishment on the world now. The Bible talks about the world now as fallen, as full of thorns and thistles, as frustrated and groaning. And I... Th- it's hard to know the details of exactly what that means from God's point of view, but at least it means on the one hand, human beings are no longer able to rule the world as they should have been able to. And on the other hand, perhaps an increase in the amount of difficulty that we encounter in the world. We can't control it and we have an increased amount of it. And so human moral evil is then punished by the experience of the inability to resist natural evils as well. Ultimately, death. The Bible says human death is a punishment from God against humans who have turned away from him. It's the consequence of those people, uh, we, the human race, who have turned away from God. So God permits uh, humans to turn aside from him in this world. The all-powerful God creates human beings who in this terrible moment have turned aside from him and so now wrecked a world. Ripped a world where there is cruelty and violence and war and lying and betrayal and deceit and hurt and violence, disappointment, where being alone becomes a bitter kind of anxious, tragic loneliness, where being in company can become fraught with jealousy and envy and resentment and, and uh, harsh words and oppressions and enslavement. We've now inherited a world where rather than being able to fill the earth and subdue it and flourish it into a garden, we are so often instead overwhelmed both by the, the, uh, the gravity, the earthquakes, the volcanoes, the diseases, the animals, the, and of course the world of our own making. Even our own technology seems to rise up and oppress us. We become slaves to the things we make. The societies and the technology and the systems themselves become human thorns and thistles through our lives. At the bottom of it all is human beings having turned away from a good God. A good God who made the world to be good who made human beings to enjoy relationship with God, enjoy his world, be able to to live and thrive and manage the risks of a finite and dynamic world, 
We've turned aside from that and now the sufferings of the world permitted by a good or powerful God, allowing human, um, permitting human choice, even evil choice, we now experience that suffering in the world. But God does something about it. Again, remember this argument about God being all-powerful, God being all-loving and evil existing is not just this timeless thing. Why doesn't God solve it now? We need to look at the timeline of the Bible. God made the world good. Humans turned away from God. We've now inherited a world of trouble and suffering uh, and evil and the judgment of God upon our rejection of him. But God is doing something about it. God identifies with us in our suffering. Sure, God could have never created conscious, willing, choosing beings capable of doing wrong. Sure. Sure, God could have immediately abolished evildoers straight away. Adam and Eve uh, reject God's good word and God immediately wipes out the human race and that's that. But instead God has chosen, the all-powerful, all-loving God has chosen to permit this evil, bear with it and deal with this human world now distorted by human evil. The cry of where is God in suffering is to say God is doing something now in the midst of a world of suffering. God has identified with us in his incarnation and his saving death. And that's what we have here in Hebrews chapter 2. We read here that in bringing many sons to glory, God, for whom and through whom everything exists, made the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. That is Jesus. The one who makes men holy and those who are made holy of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 14 of Hebrews 2, since their children have flesh and blood, he too shared in the humanity so that by his death he might destroy those who hold, uh, him who holds the power over death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held slavery in their fear of death because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. He's the faithful high priest making atonement for the sins of the people. God has come to be one of us. God the Son took on a human nature, left his throne in glory, his happiness in heaven, born in poverty, living in obscurity, suffering persecution and injustice, died, tortured, naked and alone. God knows. God identifies with us. God meets us. God is with us in this broken world of suffering and pain and struggle and aloneness and loneliness and where is God in suffering? Not far away in meditative bliss. Not simply one with the universe so that good and evil, pleasure and pain, joy and misery are all equally somehow God, as if everything is God. He's not just from a distance throwing down commands and demanding worship. The amazing thing about the Christian message is it tells us that God is both the creator of all and in charge of all, but has then come to be amongst everything. He's both transcendent and imminent. Here's a cool poem from a World War I Christian minister, uh, Edward Shalito. His uh, poem, Jesus of the, Star of the Scars, ends with this final stanza. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. 
God sympathises with us in Jesus, in our weakness, meets us in our suffering. God knows what it's like in that experiential sense in Christ. But he doesn't just come to sit with us in the gutter and say, hey, this really does suck. What a drag. (laughs) He comes to solve the problem, to save. And so that's why Hebrews here speaks not just about him identifying with us and sympathising with us, but bringing sons to glory, of making atonement for sin, of destroying the devil who holds the power over death. He deals with the problem of evil, the causes of death, and the... uh, our inability to deal with natural evils. God fixes the problem of evil. He holds off solving it straight away so that he can solve it with us, for us. Yeah? God could have just never created willing human beings to begin with, or he could have wiped them out straight away in a just judgment. But instead what God has done is intervened through the pains and the, the torments of the world to be with us, to forgive us, to heal us, to make things new. Where is God in suffering? In Christ, on the cross, risen now as a high priest who has suffered on our behalf, intercedes with us, for us, before God, promises a world made new when he returns. good news we've looked at the problem of evil argument it's not conclusive we've thought about the various causes of evil you know there's the natural evil so to speak but it's particularly moral evil a result of a free choice that distorts God's good world we've looked at how God identifies with us and saves us in our suffering in Jesus briefly as we come towards a close I want to touch on the fact that in in this timeline that means now that there can be some limited goods that come through suffering. There can be limited goods that come through suffering. So kind of list those briefly as we come towards a close. Because God is at work through suffering, that means there can be some goods that come through suffering. Uh, such as, uh, sufferings can at times be um, uh, a way in which character is formed. As I go through suffering, knowing that God is a good God, God has a good purpose. Uh, Suffering can then produce in me hope or patience, or as God has sympathised with me, I can sympathise with others. Yeah, uh, Suffering can produce uh, character in that sense. Suffering can at times prevent worse suffering in a broken world, um, uh, for example, uh, self-defence or just war or um, surgery. I don't know. There are things like this where, um, where suffering can present worse suffering. Suffering can be a form of justice or uh, necessary intervention. Suffering can highlight the good, that as I go through painful times, I'm reminded of good times. As I go through difficult times, I look ahead with hope. It highlights the good. And so suffering can draw me back to God. As character is formed in me, as I see limited justice in the world, as I'm reminded of the good in the face of the darkness, I turn back to God. And so although some people do abandon God through suffering, many come to faith in God or deepen in their faith in God. They can testify, as C.S. Lewis does, to the fact that God whispers to us in our pleasures and speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts at us in our sufferings. 
that we actually can hear God, be reminded of God, be called back to God through hard times as we cry out to him in hope, as we cry out to him for ultimate justice, as we cry out to him in thankfulness for what he has already done in Jesus and long for what he will finally do when he returns. And so that's the final point, that there is an end to suffering to come. As there is a beginning where God made a world without suffering, as there is a middle where God bears with our suffering and meets us in it, in Jesus, to identify with us and to save us, the result of Jesus' salvation is to bring many sons and daughters to glory. That the good news of Christianity is that suffering is not suffering without hope, that suffering is not suffering ending in a full stop, a black hole, a, a grave with dust and rot and nothing more, but there is actually hope to come. That as I bear with pain, frustration, disappointment, boredom, injustice now, I can have hope that in the future God will make all things new. That there is a good God, an all-powerful God, who one day will bring an end to suffering and evil, who one day will call all things to account, who has a future that is good and right and glorious. And although it's hard to make sense of all these things intellectually now, and it's hard to process all of these things emotionally now, the Bible assures us that one day we will say our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. That the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. And on that day, he will say, I'm making everything new. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, please help us understand what we can. Strive for understanding by faith to, to make sense of you and your ways in the world help us also grasp the limits to our understanding and to rationally understand where knowledge ends and mystery begins as a part of your great work in the world we praise you for the good creation you made the glorious and gracious act of salvation you have brought about in Jesus and the sure hope that is to come we pray that you use those truths to sustain us in good times and bad, to keep trusting you when we do understand and when we, have, we can't fully understand, to know what we know truly about you, that you're good, you're gracious, and you have a good purpose that you're bringing about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.